Well now, fancy meeting you here, fellow humans. I had very much hoped to see you again. I'm glad you're here. It is that time. The wind blows and the darkness and cold have teamed up and are pressing in on us. Worry not, though. The fire is warm and the light will keep away any unwanted visitors. It is time for us to pick apart and peruse peculiar, particular, and poignant plots of past perils. You know me, fellow humans, I am nothing if not a sucker for past perils. In other words, welcome to ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. I am your humble host, The Groove, and I am so pleased you have decided to spend your precious time with me. If this is your first time around, I welcome you to come close and sit. Listen to the crackle of the flames as it fights to keep the wind from slipping its cold blade into our backs. Who knows what might be listening, hidden between the shadows. Darkened shadows that can never be lit all the way. Even direct light seems to shy away from them. And it's in these dark corners between one shadow and another we find our stories. And it is here we talk about these stories, unraveling the mysteries that are hidden underneath the crimes. Then come the questions. Who did this? Why did they do it? What were the details? But unfortunately for us, we rarely get any clear and direct answers. After all, these are the, spoiler alert, tales of the unresolved. Mysteries without answers, tales with no clear end, no one we can point to accusingly. Well, some of these tales have their accused, but normally nothing inclusive. But the victims that suffered the angry claws and teeth of the unknown must have their stories told, perhaps even giving new perspective on the cases. The unresolved past must not be forgotten. So, we stand in as their voice in hopes that someday, after their stories have been told, they might receive respite at long last. Maybe, dare I say, a touch of justice? Who knows? The old bones certainly do not lie quietly, at least not tonight. They creak and moan and tell stories from below the loam. Today's episode is number 21, and our current tale is one that I'm sure you know. It is a tale spread by the light of television and movie theater, as well as graced multiple musty marred pages of many a turgid taut tome. Our killer in these tales went by a couple of different names. The Whitechapel Murderer and Leather Apron, to be exact. Sound familiar? Well, they certainly didn't to me when I first found them. They are the less common name of a killer who operated across the big pond in jolly old England. You know his name. Jack the Ripper. We all know his name. He is certainly more famous than anyone he killed. But tonight, the dead will speak shattered shanties and say superciliously just what secrets they hold. The dead will not remain silent tonight. So... Open your mind and watch the flames dance as we delve into the stories of Jack the Ripper. And if fellow humans you see the dead beckon from within the flames, take care you don't get too close. 
or the next human to stare into the fire might see you staring back at them. Content warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include descriptions of dead bodies and crime scenes, descriptions of violence and mutilation. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Now, some historical context is needed. Perhaps it will help us understand why these crimes occurred. So let's go back to autumn of 1888. By the mid-19th century, England had a lot of Irish immigrants who now lived mostly in major cities, in the east end of London. Starting in 1882, Jewish refugees came from Tsarist Russia and other parts of Eastern Europe and settled in the same area. And so the parish of Whitechapel in the east end became increasingly overcrowded, with the population reaching about 80,000 people by the year these crimes began with a lower economic class developing due to a lack of good work and housing conditions. More than half of children born in this part of London died before turning five, and dangerous streets and alcoholism became the norm. Many women became prostitutes to find a way to make ends meet due to how bad the economy was that was taking place in the East End. By October of 1888, London's Metropolitan Police Services estimated that 62 brothels were active and 1,200 women worked as prostitutes in Whitechapel, and around 8,500 people rested in the 233 rooming houses of Whitechapel every night, the nightly price for a single bed being about 5 cents, and the cost of sleeping upon a lean-to rope stretched across the dormitory being 2.5 cents per person. It seemed like the decaying economy there didn't come on its own. Social tensions rose up and between 1886 and 1889, frequent demonstrations led to police intervention and public unrest. Crime, violence, anti-Semitism, nativism, and racism made people think that Whitechapel was a really immoral place, a perception that became even stronger once Jack the Ripper showed up. Many women were attacked in the East End at the time, so it's uncertain how many people were killed by this murderer. Eleven separate murders stretching from April 3, 1888 to February 13, 1891 were included in a Metropolitan Police investigation and were known collectively to the police docket as the Whitechapel Murders. It's said that the victims of Jack the Ripper's wrath had some internal organs removed, deep slashes on the throat, abdominal and genital area mutilation, and their faces were mutilated too. There was an investigation done by the police about 11 brutal homicides that took place in Whitechapel in Spitalfields between 1888 and 1891, but authorities weren't able to connect all the killings to the murders of 1888. However, Five victims are considered the canonical five, the often considered linked victims of Jack the Ripper. First, we have Mary Ann Nichols, whose body was discovered around 3.40 a.m. on Friday, August 31st of 1881 in what is now known as Durward Street in Whitechapel. She had last been seen alive about an hour before her body was discovered by Mrs. Emily Holland, with whom she had previously shared a bed at a common lodging house on Thrall Street in Spitalfields. She was seen walking towards Whitechapel Road. Unfortunately, she never made it to her destination. 
Her throat was severed by two deep cuts, one that cut all the way down to the vertebrae, and her vagina was stabbed two times. The lower part of her abdomen was ripped open by a deep and jagged wound showing her bowels. Other wounds in her abdomen had been done by the same knife, each one inflicted in a downward stabbing thrust. A week later, on Saturday 8th, now in September, Annie Chapman was found dead at about 6 a.m. near the steps to the doorway of the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. Her throat was also severed twice. Her abdomen had been cut open, a section of her stomach flesh ending up on her left shoulder, and another section of her skin, flesh, and even her small intestines being placed above her right shoulder. Entire sections of her uterus, bladder, and vagina were removed. She was last seen standing with a man with dark hair wearing a dark brown deerstalker hat and a dark overcoat of a shabby genteel appearance. The third and fourth victims were Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Edows, killed early on Sunday, September 30th. Stride was found at about 1 a.m. in Dutfield's yard on what is now known as Henrique Street in Whitechapel. The cause of her death was a clear-cut incision of six inches that went across her neck, having severed her left carotid artery and her trachea before ending under her right jaw. As there were no other mutilations, people doubted if she was one of the Ripper's victims. Several witnesses said they saw Stry with a man in or close to Burner Street on the evening of September 29th and in the early hours of September 30th, but every single one of them gave different descriptions. Eddowes was found in a corner of Mitra Square in the city of London less than an hour after Stride's body was found. Her throat was severed from ear to ear, and her abdomen had been opened by a long, deep, jagged wound. Her intestines decorated her right shoulder, with a section of it being detached and placed between her left arm and the rest of her body. She didn't have her left kidney or most of her uterus, and her face was disfigured. Her cheek was slashed. Her nose severed and cuts about a quarter of an inch to a half an inch were cut vertically through each of her eyelids. A triangular incision had been carved upon her cheeks, with its apex pointing towards her eye. A section of her auricle, the visible part of the ear, and the lobe of her right ear were later found in her clothes, and a surgeon said that these mutilations must have taken at least five minutes. The murders of Eddowes and Stride are considered a double murder by many. Part of Eddowes' bloody apron was found at the entrance to the tenement on Goulston Street, Whitechapel at 2.55 a.m., and a chalk description was found on the wall above the apron piece which said, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Jews in this case being spelled J-U-W-E-S. This soon became known as the Goulston Street Graffito, and the message implied that a Jewish person, or many, were the culprits behind these murders, but it's not clear if the graffito was written before or after the apron was placed there, as these kinds of paintings were common in Whitechapel. The police commissioner was afraid that it might cause anti-Semitic riots, and so ordered for it to be cleaned before the sun had appeared in the sky. Now it's time for the fifth and last victim. She was called Mary Jane Kelly, and her body was extensively mutilated and disemboweled. She was found lying on the bed of the room where she lived at 13 Miller's Court 
off Dorset Street, Spitalfields, at 10.45 a.m. on Friday, November 9th. Her face was unrecognizable and, quote, gnashed in all directions. Her throat had been severed down to the spine where her abdomen lacked most of its organs. Her uterus, kidneys, and one breast had been placed under her head, and another viscera was found beside her foot, and sections of her abdomen and thighs were found on a bedside table. Her head wasn't anywhere to be seen. Ashes found in the fireplace suggested that the killer burnt things to light the room as he mutilated Kelly with recent flames being strong enough to melt the solder between a kettle and its spout, which fell into the grate of the fireplace. Every single killing of the canonical five victims was made at night or close to a weekend, either at the end of a month or about a week after. The mutilations gradually became more and more severe as the murders went on, except for Stride. Stride made people think that he was interrupted midways. The belief that these homicides were made by the same person arose due to newer documents that linked them together and excluded others. In 1894, Sir Melville McNaughton, Assistant Chief Constable of the Metropolitan Police Service and Head of the Criminal Investigation Department, the CID, wrote a report that stated the Whitechapel murder had five victims and five victims only. Plus, they were linked together in a letter written by police surgeon Thomas Bond. A couple of researchers affirm that some of the murders were made by the same person, but not all of them. Some authors even say that the relation between the canonical five is a myth, but three cases, Nichols, Chapman, and Eddowes, can actually be linked, but they're not sure that Stride and Kelly were victims of the same person. It's said that the other murders were made by people who tried to emulate Mr. the Ripper. Generally, Kelly is considered the Ripper's final victim, and it's supposed that the murders ended because the culprit died, was imprisoned, or simply moved away. But the Whitechapel murders file details that four other killings happened after the canonical five. To begin with, we have Rose Milet, who was found in Clark's Yard, High Street, Poplar, on December 20, 1888. She had not struggled, and authorities believed that she had accidentally hung herself while drunk or it had been a suicide. Yet there were faint markings left by a cord on her neck that suggested that she had been strangled. In the end, the jury declared that it had been a murder. Then we have Alice McKenzie, who killed shortly after midnight on July 17th in Castle Alley, Whitechapel. She was stabbed twice in her neck, and her carotid artery was severed. There were minor bruises and cuts on her body, plus a 7-inch long superficial wound going from her left breast to her navel. One of the examiners, Thomas Bond, believed that the Ripper was behind this murder too, but his colleagues, George Baxter Phillips, disagreed after examining the bodies of the three previous victims. Then there was the Pynchon Street Torso a decomposing headless and legless torso of an unidentified woman between 30 and 40 discovered beneath a railway arch in Pynchon Street, Whitechapel on September 10, 1889. Bruising about the victim's back, hip, and arm indicated that the dead had been extensively beaten shortly before her death. The victim's abdomen was also extensively mutilated, although her genitals had not been wounded. She appeared to have been killed approximately one day prior to the discovery of the torso. 
The dismembered sections of the body are believed to have been transported to the railway arch and hidden under an old chemise. For those that don't know, like your old pal LeGrew, a chemise is a female shirt-like undergarment. And yes, I had to look that up. And the last possible victim is Frances Coles, a prostitute found dead by P.C. Ernest Thompson at 2.15 a.m. on February 13, 1891, lying beneath a railway arch at Swallow Gardens, Whitechapel. Her throat had been cut completely, but she hadn't been mutilated, so people believe that Thompson scared the culprit away before he could do anything. Coles died before anyone could heal her wounds. A stoker, that is someone hired to fuel and tend furnaces, James Thomas Sadler had been seen drinking with the woman, and they argued three hours before she died, and Sadler was quickly arrested by authorities. He was discharged from court due to a lack of evidence on May 3rd, 1891. There are other alleged victims apart from the 11 Whitechapel murders, but nothing solidly connected to Jack. Let's go with the investigation now. Most police files regarding the investigation of the Whitechapel murders were destroyed in the Blitz, a bombing campaign done by Nazi Germany towards the UK in World War II. The surviving police files allow a detailed view of the investigative procedures made back in the late 19th century. More than 2,000 people were interviewed, about 300 investigated, and 80 detained. After the murders of Stride and Eddowes, a reward of 500 pounds was offered for the arrest of the Ripper. The initial investigation was done by the Metropolitan Whitechapel Division Criminal Investigation Department, the CID, headed by Detective Inspector Edmund Reed. After Nichols was killed, a couple of detective inspectors were sent from the central office at Scotland Yard to assist. The City of London Police were involved under Detective Inspector James McWilliam after the Eddowes murder, which occurred in the City of London. The investigation was hampered at one point because the newly appointed head of the CID was on leave when Chapman, Stride, and Eddowes were killed. This made the Metropolitan Police Commissioner appoint the case to the Scotland Yard. Doctors, butchers, and slaughterers were the first suspects due to how the victims were mutilated. A surviving note from the acting commissioner of the police says that the alibis of local butchers and slaughterers were investigated to no avail. Seventy-six of them were visited, and they were asked about all of their employees for the previous half of the year. Some people believe, some people believe that the culprit was a butcher or cattle drover on the cattle boats that tended to dock at the London docks. Whitechapel is close to these docks, and so the boats were investigated with no useful outcomes. In September 1888, a group of volunteer citizens in London's East End formed the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. They walked through the streets in search of suspicious people, both because they weren't happy with how long the police were taking to arrest the murderer, and because some of its members were worried about how the killings were affecting local businesses. The committee asked the government to give a reward for information that might help find the killer and offered their own reward for the same thing. They even hired private detectives to help with the case. By the end of October, Robert Anderson asked police surgeon Thomas Bond to say what he thought about the apparent surgical skill and knowledge of Jack the Ripper and his opinion of the earliest surviving offender profile. He wrote, all five murders no doubt were committed by the same hand. 
In the first four, the throats appear to have been cut from left to right. In the last case, owing to the extensive mutilation, it is possible to say in what direction the facial cut was made. But arterial blood was found on the wall in splashes close to where the woman's head must have been lying. All the circumstances surrounding the murders lead me to form the opinion that the woman must have been lying down when murdered, and in every case, the throat was first cut. He didn't think that the killer actually had scientific or anatomical knowledge, not even the techniques of a butcher. He believed that the killer was a solitary man and that, quote, the homicidal impulse may have developed from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or that religious mania may have been the original disease, but I do not think either hypothesis is likely. No evidence says that the killer engaged in sexual activity with the victims, yet psychologists think that the perpetrator still had sexual pleasure from the attacks as the victims were penetrated with a knife and they were left displayed in sexually degrading positions. But this view is challenged because people say it's just supposition. As the killings were mostly done around the weekends and the public holidays and not too far from each other, it was said that the Ripper had a job and lived locally. Other people claimed that he was an upper-class man, probably a doctor or an aristocrat, but these claims were mostly born from fear of doctors and modern science, or the exploitation of the poor by the rich people. A term was created to describe the study of the Ripper. It was called a Rippertology. Some suspects were proposed years after the murders occurred, and some were never even considered in the original investigation, and evidence against these people is, at best, circumstantial if not non-existent. Countless letters were received by police and the media back when the investigation was open. Some were well-intentioned, but most of them were completely useless and didn't help finding the culprit at all. Hundreds of letters claimed to be written by the killer himself, but three stand out among these. The Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jackie postcard, and the From Hell letter. The Dear Boss letter was dated September 25th and was postmarked September 27th of 1888. And it was received that same day by the Central News Agency who forwarded it to Scotland Yard two days later on September 29th. At first it was considered a hoax but then Edales was found three days later after the letter was postmarked with a section of one of her ears cut and with the author promising to, quote, clip the lady's ears off, it gained everyone's attention. Edales' ear apparently was nicked by the murderer during the attack, yet the threat found in the letter of him sending the ear to the authorities was never fulfilled. The person who signed this did so as Jack the Ripper, and it was the first time that the name was spread around the world. Most of the writings that followed this letter copied its tone. Some authors adopted pseudonyms like George of the High Rip Gang and Jack Sheridan the Ripper. Sources claim that an earlier letter, dated September 17, 1888, was the first to use the well-known nickname, but most people believe that this one was inserted into police records in the 20th century, probably to cause more drama. Then we have the second of the interesting letters, or, well, postcard in this case, named the Saucy Jackie. It was postmarked October 1st, 1888, and received the same day by the Central News Agency. The handwriting was similar to the previous letter and mentioned the canonical murders committed on September 30th, which the author refers to as, quote, double event this time. People argue that this postcard was posted before the cases were known by the public and that the culprit would have written it, 
but the postmark was over 24 hours after the murders happened and the details were known by the media, so this postcard soon fell to gossip between Whitechapel's residents. Last, but not least important, we have the From Hell letter received by George Lusk, leader of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee on October 16, 1888. The handwriting and style was different to the previous letter and postcard, and it came inside a small box, accompanied by half a human kidney preserved in ethanol. Coincidentally, Ed Owes' left kidney was removed, and the author claimed to have eaten the missing half of the kidney. There's disagreement over the kidney, some saying that it belonged to the victim, another saying it was another gruesome joke of sorts. It was examined by a doctor in the London hospital, and it was confirmed to have belonged to a human. It was a left-side kidney, but there were no other distinguishable biological characteristics. This doctor soon received a letter signed by Jack the Ripper, which read, Oh, boss, you was right. It was the left kidney. I was going to operate again, close to your hospital, just as I was going to draw my knife along a blooming throat. Them cusses of coppers sport the game. But I guess I will be on the job soon and send you another bit of innards. Jack the Ripper. Oh, have you seen the devil? With his milkoscope and scapule, a looking at a kidney with the slide cocked up. Copies of the Dear Boss letter and the postcard were published by Scotland Yard in hopes that someone might recognize the handwriting. Police later claimed to have identified a specific journalist as the author of these two literary pieces. They were identified as Tom Bullen in a letter from Chief Inspector John Littlechild to George R. Sims, dated September 23, 1913. Eighteen years later, in 1931, journalist Fred Best confessed that he and a colleague at the Star wrote the letters signed with Jack the Ripper just to keep the flames of interest alive in the case. The Ripper was a turning point about how journalists treated crime in their reports. He wasn't the first known serial killer, but his case was the first to become so widespread that the entire world began reporting on it. Also, more and more working-class people of England and Wales were literate by 1888 due to the Elementary Education Act of 1880 that made school attendance compulsory regardless of class. They now could read and inform themselves about the news, including the savage killings. There was also the help of tax reforms in the 1850s, which allowed publications of cheaper newspapers that allowed people from all classes to get their hands on them. Some newspapers were worth as little as half a penny, and alongside the help of popular magazines, the Ripper found himself with lots and lots of publicity. When the investigation was at its peak, more than one million copies of the newspaper with information about the Whitechapel murders were sold per day. People wanted to know what was going on, who was the culprit. Albeit a good chunk of information spread was false and speculative, and several articles alluded to xenophobic rumors that the culprit was either Jewish or foreign. Early September, just six days after Mary Ann Nichols was murdered, the Manchester Guardian reported, quote, Whatever information may be in the possession of the police, they deem it necessary to keep secret. It is believed their attention is particularly directed to a notorious character known as Leather Apron. 
journalists weren't happy with this yet. He wasn't very fond of revealing details of the investigation to the general public, so they spread not-so-accurate reports of their own, thus making creative descriptions of Leather Apron appear in the press. Yet rival journalists said that these were, quote, a mythical outgrowth of the reporter's fantasy, and somehow they found someone to arrest. John Pizer, a local Jewish man who made shoes out of leather, who was known as, you guessed it, Leather Apron. It was his nickname. The investigating inspector reported that there wasn't any evidence against him, yet he was arrested, although he was released soon after his alibis were confirmed. However, after the publication, one of the letters, specifically the Dear Boss one that we talked about before, the nickname given to the serial killer turned into the one we all know, Jack the Ripper. Jack was already used to describe another mythical killer, Springheel Jack, so it probably took some inspiration from that. It's said that the nickname that we used for the killer was born due to a letter written by someone who claimed to be Jack the Ripper, but is believed to have been a hoax made by journalists to help the newspaper's circulation. Jack the Ripper was the beginning of the media creating names for particular killers, which soon became the standard with time in different newspapers. Some other examples that I've talked about are The Axeman of New Orleans and Jack the Stripper. Yeah, in case you hadn't figured it out yet, Jack the Stripper got his nom de plume from Jack the Ripper. News spread and spread worldwide, and his legend was solidified. And the mystery behind these murders left lots of room for imagination to thrive. And the public was charmed by the countless possibilities behind the truth. And so it became widespread. Folks talked and made theories, and rumors spread. Even if no ounce of truth was shared, Jack the Ripper became a popular criminal whose identity remained unknown through the decades. But let me tell you, fellow humans, long after this murder occurred, some useful information has appeared. Remember how I said earlier that we don't often get clear answers? Well, looks like this one might be the exception to the rule. Thanks to advances in technology, in 2019 it was revealed, thanks to an examination of a stained silk shawl found next to Edaz's body, Jack the Ripper was Aaron Kaminsky, a 23-year-old Polish barber who apparently had been a suspect back in the 19th century. It's the first time that DNA pointed to this man. Although he no longer lives to suffer any kind of punishment, the truth has now appeared. It would appear, fellow humans, that this night the dead can finally rest. The fire is dying, fellow humans. You know what that means. Our time together grows short, at least for this night. You must go your way, but worry not. As long as I am able, you will always have a place by my fire, where we will wander wondrous worlds, tarry through torturous tomes taught and true. When next we meet, I will have collected more groundbreaking ghastly and grotesque cases just for your ears. Fear not if I have absences, for I will always return to share a fire and the night, and I'll do so until my last tale is told. There are many stories all over the world, and we will do our best to give a voice to the victims that don't have one of their own. You can usually find me here at 6 a.m. Eastern on Mondays, Sometimes, though, life gets in the way and I might be a bit late. But wait, 
just a moment longer before the fire dies out. Do you happen to know any other terrific, thrilling, tragic tales that you'd be interested in hearing about? Those that might be lost in time and space that I could help be heard once again? Accounts of the past that perhaps are boundless, baffling, or brackish on their own? Consider letting me know with a comment in any of my socials, like my YouTube or my personal website. Remember to hit that bell to not miss any new content for my channel. That was episode 21 of ASM Murder. If you want to catch up on any episodes you missed, or you just want to hear more of me in general, you can go to my website, murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. You can also find my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast, and Stitcher. I'll leave links in the description. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'd love to hear your thoughts, or, well, read your comments anyway. Thank you for lending me your time. Time is a precious gift. We must never squander it. May yours be filled with love and light. Until next time, please be kind to yourselves and be good to each other. Take care. This is your friendly neighborhood crew, signing off.